Hello, welcome to Moms Changing the World. This is your host, Akua Walker, Child Development Nurse Practitioner and CEO, Chief Encouragement Officer, introducing the new podcast, which is the place for moms to find encouragement, hope, and inspiration, where we're supporting moms in the trenches of motherhood. You will receive practical tips and strategies to address the developmental needs of your children with a positive parenting perspective in mind. Here at Moms Changing the World, we are moms on the journey of changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Welcome back to Moms Changing the World. You're back for a bonus episode that we are sharing with uh, my cousin, Awo Kwesinsaki. Uh, please make sure to listen to our main interview, um, but we thought we would spend a little extra time getting to know some about Ghana's history through the lens of um, Awo Kwesinsaki and, and our family and her family. So just a, a little bit about Awo. She is a human resource and finance law and general management professional, currently working in Ghana as the regional vice president for human resources at Newmont Africa. And she's in this role. She works and oversees over 5,000 employees and contractors in the Africa region, enjoying things like reading, scrabble, and exercise in her free time. During the main interview, talked about her son as well. She's the proud mom of Awonate Kovana, who is one of the 40 under 40 highlighted in the Emory and Cranes magazines to watch for his work in the Obama administration as a, a policy advisor, as well as leadership now in the sports world with the Detroit Pistons, and also with the Grand Canyon Conservancy over the Grand Canyon National Park. So I wanted to spend some time right now talking about a kind of a special project that you are uh, wrapping up on and getting ready to share, you know, more widely with the world in the book that you are writing about your father's, you know, life and work. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to write the book and what we can, some of what we can expect from it. My father passed away in 1992 at the age of 68. And before, before that, he had spent some time in, with me in Connecticut. And uh, he was writing his manuscript, his memoirs at the time. You know, this is one of those deals where I wish I had been in a better mood and paid more attention. But I wasn't, and I didn't. So after he passed away, I had all these uh, handwritten notes about his life. And by the age of 40, my father was the first black president of the General Assembly at the United Nations. He was then the ambassador from Ghana to the United Nations. And the the General Assembly uh, role is one that's an elected position. So the countries have to uh, vote for you to take that presidency. So at the time when he uh, was serving Ghana as the ambassador, and then when he became the president of the General Assembly, it was a huge deal for all of us, because even as a 10-year-old, I knew that that was an important position. He was in the New York Times 
all the time for one thing or another. And he was in Jet Magazine all the time for uh, some of the social uh, events that he and my mother had at the house. They'd have these parties and the kids had to go to bed early, but we would watch through the stairs, <laughs> through the banisters of the stairs. And, you know, we'd see famous people like Sidney Poitier or Asi Davis and Ruby D. Malcolm X came to uh, one of the parties, Louis Farrakhan. I mean, so it was, a, it was a special time for us as kids. So as I had all this, all this paper, I thought, okay, so let me start to put it together. And it's taken me a long time. You know, this is one of the things I thank the lockdown, COVID-19 lockdown for, that I decided, okay, what projects am I going to finish? I'm still working, working from home, but I thought, okay, there are things I can do. So this was one of them. And so I've typed up, it's about 15 chapters. I've added some things. And I thought, okay, so I'm looking to publish the book. And I have a plan now that we can get it edited and published by the first quarter of 2021. The story just feels like a story that needs to be told. Because Ghana is a young country. We became independent in 1957. And there's so much that people don't know about those early years. Like many countries, I think our history isn't all documented. It's, it's people's memories of things. But we're young enough that there are things that we have lived through. And as I was typing my father's book, I learned a lot about him, for sure. I learned a lot about me. And I learned a lot about the country and what the hopes and the dreams were for Ghana when it became independent, what the hopes and the dreams were for Africa, the sub-Saharan African countries at the time. It, it's, it's just been very eye-opening. So I've given the book to a couple of people to read. I had a, a couple of young people who are in their 20s edit the book, and they didn't know any of this. So as, uh, as something that's historical, I think it, it's... And they, 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 like, they were so thrilled to be reading about this stuff. And then the two older gentlemen who have themselves been ambassadors and have served Ghana said to me that there's a gap in Ghana's history, documented history, that the book fills. And so they're, they're all champions for getting it published. In 2018, the president of Ghana brought together the remainder of the 10 diplomats that were first selected to represent Ghana outside of Ghana. They picked 10 people who were trained and some of them, a couple of them are still alive. The rest have passed on. But he brought together those that were still alive as well as, as well as the relatives of those who have passed on and awarded the first 10 people a posthumous award or a live award. And I had my father's sister and brother come with me to the, the, the president's ceremony to get the award on behalf of my father. And I cannot tell you how moving that was and how much I wish my father could have gotten that honor as someone who's alive. But that's clearly to me just the end of the story for him. The rest of it still has to be told. So that's why I'm, do that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> long, long, long answer. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think, you, yeah, you've mentioned quite a few things that, that are very important. And it's almost, you know, almost like the making of a nation in that time, you know, Ghana, as a relatively small country, played quite a pivotal role, I think, in the movement um, towards independence, you know, as one of the, the first countries to gain it from it colonialism. And 
I, you know, I think it's a, a unique experience or a unique time, as you mentioned, for the continent, but specifically, yeah, for Ghana. And I think you're right that those of us with a connection to Ghana and even not, I think, need to hear more about what it took for those early visionaries to have this idea that we as a, as a nation could be more, you know, as Ghana as a nation could be more on its own without the colonial, in, you know, I guess, leadership time. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what you understand or know of life before independence? Yeah. So life before independence, and again, I'm, I'm, um, I was born in 1954, so I, I was three when Ghana became independent. Uh, but what, from what I'm reading, life before independence was everything was run uh, through, through Great Britain. We were part of the British Empire. Uh, we were, Ghana was the, the British colony, surrounded mostly by French colonial territories. And there was some in the... Uh, British colonial government that did not believe in educating black people, Africans. And a lot of the colonial world was based on uh, the natural resources that were available to the colonial countries. So Ghana actually uh, was probably uh, probably in relatively good shape as a country. I don't think that people necessarily felt that they were suffering under colonial rule. It's uh, more an issue of uh, self-determination. We were very British. You know, people would wear three-piece suits in the hot sun because that's what (laughs) British people did. And unlike the French colonial territories, we we didn't have that um, paternalistic view that the French had over their colonial territories. So Ghanaians actually were able to, to, to get an education and to thrive. Some of the schools that were set up during that time, like Achimota or the University of Ghana, Fansipim, have existed either through a, a church setting them up or somebody's vision for, for years and years and years. Education became, for many, many people, the ticket. If you got educated, then you could do well. You could get a position in government for the most part because there was very little industry. The colonial masters were not in a hurry to set up industries to, to um, employ people. It was mostly about the civil government and then the natural resources. So my father was fortunate in that he came up from a family that viewed education to be important. My mother as well, but in her family, what it, uh, and I haven't talked to her, but what it seems to have turned out is that the, the, the boys were the ones who got the university education the girls didn't. Uh, So there was that gender divide that I don't think existed everywhere. I mean, one of our first Supreme Court justices was a female, and there are other famous females in in Ghana's background. What I learned from the book was what the fight for independence was like, the momentum that built up around self-determination, what it took to have Ghana be independent. The British spent a fair amount of time on an orderly turnover. So people were being trained to hold positions that up until that time had only been held by uh, people who were British. And hence my father being picked as the one of the first 10 to be trained as a diplomat. And the training was, a, was phenomenal training. 
I think he went to LSE in London, London School of Economics as part of his training. He was taught how to speak French as part of his training. Mm -hmm. uh, he was posted to Brazil for a few months to actually work in a, uh, uh, in a diplomatic role as part of his training. And then my mother had to go with him because she had to learn how to be a diplomat's wife. Right. So <laughs> she, yeah, so she had to go through that training. And I, I, I think um, I learned a lot about the racism of the time as well. You know, in the book, there's a story that my father tells of my mother. Somebody told her, one of the other women told her that because she's black, if she tries to go out and meet her neighbors, they'll think that she's applying for a maid's job unless she's wearing her African garb. So my mother decided to try this out. She wore a dress and went and knocked on neighbors' doors. And most of them, if not all of them, thought she was looking for a job as a maid. Mm -hmm. So there's stories like that that are sprinkled through the book, human, human stories about what life was like as a Ghanaian in a foreign country, and then how emotional it was when Ghana finally obtained its independence. It was a very emotional time. And the readiness, what, what the country did to be ready for independence. There's a line in my father's book where he writes about all the plans that were being made for after independence. And he makes a comment about the plans were actually great plans, but nobody really thought about execution. How were we actually going to execute these plans? How are we going to fund these plans? And I, I think that that's still a little bit of a shortcoming. And, I, you know, it may be that when you get a bunch of smart people together, they can come up with plans. But you need people who are not just smart, but also action-oriented to help you to say, okay, in order to implement this, you're going to need this, this, and that. And I, it seems like that was missing back, back then. And it may actually be kind of missing today. <laughs> so uh, so I, I'm able to compare today to you know, the 1950s and 60s a little bit to see how did we end up where we are today. So then, you know, under the leadership of Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana becomes its own nation. Tell us more about the early years from your father's so, perspective. Yeah, the early years were thrilling because Ghana got independence and it became the, uh, it was like the domino effect after that, the other countries were also going to get independence. There was no question, but it was a fight at the United Nations for why were the Portuguese and the French holding on to their colonies and the Belgians? Why weren't more countries supporting the fight for independence? And it's very interesting. I mean, the Congo today is probably still at the effect of how independence was won. It's still a difficult country to, to be in. And, and, I, and I think that that's because on the eve of independence, the, the Belgians decided they were going to take everything and leave nothing. And they, they, they went to war, you know? So, yeah, so it's interesting to watch the connection. From a, a little bit of a human standpoint, my father was part of that fight since Ghana was committed to supporting the other countries. And I remember Patrice Lumumba coming to the house. He, he stayed at the house because he came to talk to the United Nations. And I remember seeing him at the house and then he left. I mean, in those days, people would come to the house a lot. Miriam, Miriam McCabe, the, the South African singer, came and had lunch with 
uh, with us a few times. So there was this sort of thrill of something happening. And then I remember a few months after Lumumba left the house, picking up a newspaper in my father's um, library. And there was a picture of Lumumba with a noose around his head. He had been killed. And, you know, I was like six or seven years old at the time. I was like, wow. I remember being traumatized. I, I, I probably decided at that point I would never pick up a newspaper again. Sure. But those were, the, those, those were the days, right? Those mm-hmm. are the days when people were fighting. And civil rights was, uh, the civil rights uh, war was going on in the U.S. at the same time. And my father was um, integrally involved in that right. as well. And you mentioned having both uh, Louis Farrakhan and Malcolm X at the home at one time. Yeah, somebody else told me this story. So my father's parties were apparently legendary. My father's a party animal. <laughs> um, my, my, mother, my mother's nickname for him was, come to my party. And sometimes there'd be no party, but we would have one because people showed up, right? Right, right. So uh, this gentleman told me a story of walking into one of the, I think it was, uh, my father would have these uh, July 1st uh, Independence Day parties, or Republic Day parties. And the person walked into the house, into the living room, and he said in one corner was Malcolm X and the other corner was Louis Farrakhan, who were in opposition around their, uh, their styles for f- the fight for civil rights in the U.S. But he said it was, vi- it was uh, potent seeing them in, alt- in opposing corners at that time. Yeah. Yeah, so we, I think, yeah, we can take years later now we can kind of take for granted the the fight that it took to establish you know a new nation and to make one's place in i guess in kind of in the world scene maybe tell us a little bit about you know that aspect of of your father's work so in those years ghana this is the 60s ghana was was known i would say and i was surprised when i was researching articles about my father, how many there were. So after he finished the stint as the president of the General Assembly, he came back to Ghana as the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, which in uh, the U.S. equivalent would be the head of the State Department, the you know, cabinet position. He came back, let's say, in November of, 20, of uh, 1965. And then in February, on February 24th, 1966, there was a coup d'etat. And uh, at the time, the then president Nkrumah had traveled to Hanoi and my father was with him. Nkrumah actually never came back to Ghana after the coup. My father tells the story of having to make a decision about whether he was going to remain in exile or whether he was going to come back because his wife and five kids at the time were in Ghana. I was in boarding school. So when the coup happened, my, my perspective was that people were joyous at school and, you know, making comments that, you know, kids will make insensitive comments. So people making comments like, well, you'll, you'll see how it is to be a regular person now, things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I saw was my father coming back to Ghana, being led off a plane with bayonets pointed at him and a, a quote, whiff of fresh air. So my father... Uh, was clearly someone who loved his country. And I don't think there was any question in his mind that he was coming back to Ghana. Mm -hmm. And I think he thought he was coming back to serve because that's what he wanted to do. From the articles that I've read as part of the book and what I've heard from other people, during that time, my father was probably better known than Nkrumah was around the world. 
because he was very vocal in the United Nations. And there's a little piece in one of, one of the New York Times articles about Nkrumah having brought him back because of his jealousy that he was getting too much play on the world stage. Now, I take that with a grain of salt. I think he brought him back because having someone who could play on the world stage is a huge advantage in the role of Minister of Foreign Affairs. Of course, it would be, have been the logical thing to do. Right. And I think the, the fact of the matter is the coup that happened two months later just altered my father's life. I'm not sure, from my point of view, that he ever recovered from it, really. And he certainly died of uh, congestive heart failure, which I, I would attribute to the time that he spent as a political prisoner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then life must have taken a, a complete turn for you and your family. Yeah. My parents had sent the three oldest children, and I'm, I'm the th- I was the third, back to Ghana to secondary school in 1963. My brothers came in 1963. I came in 1964. So I was in Ghana with my parents not being here. They came back at the end of 1965, and then the coup happened beginning of 1966. And I just, my father was in Usher Fort as a political prisoner for months, and my mother was on her own. And there's something that happens with human beings where when somebody's doing well, they'll be around. And when somebody's not doing well, they stay away. Mm-hmm. So I think there were one or two of my father's friends who were helpful to my mother because we had nothing. They, all his accounts were frozen. They had looted the house and taken everything. So, you know, from my perspective, we went from, you know, being able to have two pieces of meat or chicken in your soup to only having one. If you took two, my mother took one out. Uh, I learned how to sew my own clothes during that time, which, you know, which is fine. Uh, I probably would have done that anyway, but I was sewing my clothes out of old curtains because, you know, and that wasn't all the time, but I think we, we, we all kind of did what we needed to do yeah. during that time when things were really, really hard. And, you know, one of the things I wish I talked to my mother about was how it was for her. I never had the chance to do that because uh, she, I think she struggled. I think she struggled. She had to take food to my father in, in prison. And I think she was harassed a lot. You know, uh, I, there was one trip she was making from Winnipeg to Accra and they seized the car on the way. <laughs> you know, so, you know, things like that. But uh, she, she's, she was really strong. And luckily the, the four older kids were in boarding school. The three older kids were in boarding school. So we, you know, we just stayed. And the other, the other memory that stuck with me is a few months after the newspaper article where my father was coming back into the country and the bayonets were pointed at him, I was getting confirmed. And confirmation day at my school was a big event. You know, people would dress up. We'd go out in the morning, get flowers and dress our beds and families would come with food to share and all of that. And I knew that I was not going to have anything because because the coup had happened and my mother was occupied. She had two young kids at home, three of us in boarding school. So I, you know, I got up that day, I decided what I was going to wear. And I went out and got my flowers and did my bed. And then somebody said, you have visitors. And I thought, who's coming? It was my mother. She had a dress for me for my confirmation, a white dress that one of her brothers had sent from New York with shoes. 
And sitting in the back of the car was my father. He had apparently been released from prison that morning. So I was ecstatic. I had a dress, I had shoes, and my father was in the car. So I remember going like, hey, and he wouldn't even look at me. Mm. He would not even look at me. He didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that was my day. I mean, I had the dress and the shoes and my mother brought food. I mean, I, for her to have juggled that in one day, it was like eight in the morning. So in one morning, I, I just give her a, a whole lot of credit. Yeah, I think um, so, so he, yeah, sorry. I was going to just say, I think, yeah, the strength of, of, our, of our mothers shines through in, in times like that. You know, we, we see what, what, you know, what really they're, they're made of and what's been there all along. But, you know, what a, like, what a testament to how strong she was. Right. Yeah. And he didn't, they released him that day and they came back for him a couple of days later. So that was, that, that was just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he doesn't talk about a lot of that in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he'd have written, actually, he makes a comment that he doesn't want to talk a lot about what happened during that time. I think it was pretty rough. Sure, sure. Yeah. Understandable. And so then I'm you know, sure those transitions, you know, influenced, you know, the, the course of your life, you know, from there. How would you say, you know, your life changed? and was influenced by those transitions and those times? So I think anybody who knows me would describe me as uh, fiercely independent. I'm not sure that I've always been, but I, I do think that that time shaped, I realized at some point in time that I had to make my own clothes, depend on myself. I started working during the summertime just to get a little bit of money to buy my own provisions for school. So I think my independence was shaped during that time. Mm-hmm. I have lived the rest of my life extremely self-sufficient. It, it's, it's both a blessing and it's also <laughs> probably a little bit of a curse in that I, I will not depend on anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it comes from that period of time when I could not mm-hmm. depend on anybody. So it certainly shaped me from that perspective. I think it also shaped me from the perspective of how important family is because my mother had her family. Her family is extremely close. The Blankson family is legendary, I think. Mm. And I know know that her her brothers and her sisters have always been like a mainstay. And her, her mother was a mainstay for her, her father. So just the importance of of staying with family. There's, there's no reason, you know, I, I, I can understand siblings fighting and stuff like that, but you know, not forever, not for long. Yeah. That's not, that's not part of how I view family dynamics. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's there to, to provide you with, you know, the security blanket when you need it and the love and all that for no reason. And I'm, I'm glad that we have that in our family. And I think that I learned that during that time. We do. We do. And um, our connection, I didn't mention earlier, but is that um, your mother and my father are brother and sister. And I, you know, from what I 
you know, no, I, I feel like, you know, your mother being the oldest of the siblings, you know, definitely paved the way, you know, for the, the siblings after, whether it was, you know, opening doors for education abroad in London or uh, the States. I think that family connection and that, that desire to help each other as siblings, I think definitely started, you know, was kind of passed on, right, from our grandparents, you know, to um, our parents and and your mom, you know, being the oldest really helped to open up those ways, I think, for, for the rest of the siblings to follow. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Good, good. So, you know, in closing, I think, you know, if you were talking to, you know, uh, somebody about, you know, why they should, you know, pick up the book that uh, we're you know, eagerly looking forward to, you know, uh, in 2021, you know, what would you say as to, to why they should um, take some time, especially I think in the climate where America uh, is going through so much with race and, and race relations. And, you know, we've had uh, um, uh, African-American president, we've had a first family, you know, that's black and have, has, has given some amazing you know, examples of that leadership. And on the kind of entertainment side, you know, we've had Black Panther, um, um, the movie, you know, the Marvel comic movie, where it showed, you know, Wakanda, you know, a fictionalized, you know, African uh, nation, but one that was, you know, quite pan-African, I think, as far as the unity uh, of Africa and the, the p- potential and the hope of Africa wrapped up all of into it. So with, you know, all these different things that we've now experienced, you know, what would you say to someone who's considering picking up, you know, the book and why they should read it? So I would say that, you know, I, I actually love the movie Black Panther. And I loved it because I, I was left with feelings of hope and admiration for what could Same. be achieved. Same. And I think that's what you get from the, from, uh, from the book as well. Hope and admiration for what has been achieved and what's possible. The, there was a dream and it has not yet been realized, but it's still there to be realized. And the stereotype of who an African is, is completely dispelled in the book. I mean, in 1975, when I got to the U.S., people were asking me what I did with my tail, where I got my first clothes from. You know, so I pictured myself getting on a flight with a tail and no clothes. I don't think I'd have been let on the flight. (laughs) But I think People need to understand that there was there was there was a time when we had plans for ourselves, and the fact that those plans have not been realized does not mean that we're not capable, and does not mean that those will not happen. There are people today that are still fighting for economic independence, which is the part that's missing. And there are reasons why it's missing in many African countries. And I think understanding the fight for independence will help people to understand why it's the way it is. It's not all mismanagement. It's, it's, it could be that, part, probably partly is, but it's also what people had to start with. And I, you know, that's my opinion. I'm not trying to be political. I also, I also think the book is a good story about a young man's dreams and how those ended up and how we can actually carry those dreams forward. You know, and if I link this to what Ikwa is doing with Mothers Changing the World, I can only say that in spite of myself and my own inclinations and what I love doing, I have a, a young man who has the urge to make the world a better place in my son. And I think of how like my father he is, 
So I would say, uh, other than the good story and the historical element, I think it might ignite something for each one of us as we read this book. Yeah, I think we all need inspiration in these days. We all need hope. And I'm so excited that you are putting this together so that uh, not only as a family, but really as a country, as a community, as a world, you know, we have this written history uh, of hope, the story of hope that we can, we can all celebrate. So yeah. thank you so much. So uh, everybody look for the book. You know, the title is, is still in, in formation, but it'll be authored by Awo Kwesinsaki. A memoir of her father, Alex Kwesinsaki, telling about uh, you know his perspective on on the nation of, of Ghana coming to be. Great, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Take care. Okay. for listening to Moms Changing the World with host Akua Walker. The information shared on this show is meant for educational purposes only and not intended as a substitute for medical intervention or professional therapy. All views shared on the show are that of the speakers only and do not represent any institution. To be a part of the community, visit www.momschangingtheworld.org. There you'll find ways to connect with and support the moms we interview. Join us next time for more encouragement and support to be a mom changing the world, one child at a time, one day at a time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.